This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. before Jamie Ingalls' first children's novel, Clifton Chase and the Arrow of Light, was slated to be published, her publisher bailed. She was stranded. She had no choice but to figure out self-publishing and promotion. But she rolled up her sleeves and promoted the book through partnerships with mommy bloggers, and within the first week, she had sold over 100 copies. Then discouragement set in. She admits, I was heartbroken that I was no longer a published author, but rather a self-published author. I lost the passion for my book and my sales slowed. She stepped away from the book and spent the next year helping other people get their book ready for print through her PR firm, A Writer for Life. It was then she had a come to Jesus moment. Why was she helping others promote her book while she was ignoring her own? Over time, Jamie has come to see power in self-publishing. And today she is here to share what that power is as well as provide insight into the writing life and what she is working on now. Welcome, Jamie. We are so glad to have you here today. Thank you, guys. I am so excited to be with you and share whatever I can to help your audience publish their books. Absolutely. We need all the help we can get, so we are so grateful for that. Before we jump into the interview, Dave and I always start out each podcast with some commentary about what we've made progress on in the week, and it doesn't often relate to writing. Sometimes it does, but it's just any area of our life that we've made progress. And I always make Dave go first. I put him on the spot. So Dave, where did you make progress this week? You make me go first because you have to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> my progress is back with my daughter. I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, but we our youngest is 12 years old. So she's in seventh grade and she's also in seventh grade hell because of, of COVID and the hybrid learning. And it's just, it's the worst thing ever. And I feel bad for the teachers and I actually not as much for the teachers. And, and I feel bad for the kids. So you're, you're 12 years old, you know, puberty is raging. And, and you're trying to manage assignments that you hand in and stuff that you hand in online. And it, it, it's a nightmare it has nothing to do with her ability to get to do things, but getting things handed in. And so she's working on this thing. So I as as she's our fourth kid. So with your fourth kid, it's not like your first kid. Your first kid, you're so anxious. Oh my God, he's got to go to got to go to Harvard, and so I, I've got to make sure that he's so smart. And there's all this anxiety that you have, so you hover over these kids. By your fourth kid, you think, nah, whatever. And so, so we've had kind of a hands-on attitude, thinking, well, hands-off, excuse me, not hands-on, hands-off attitude, thinking, hey, she'll figure it out. Last night, I slowed down and said, hey, Jay, and I wasn't anxious, I wasn't mad, I just said, hey, let's let's go through all these grade book issues on online, you can see your grades, and let's walk through each one and see what you're missing. She said, oh, dad, I, I'm not missing anything. It says I'm not missing anything. I said, I think you're missing a few things. So we go through, she was missing like nine assignments. Whoa. And and but anyway, the progress is daddy progress, just this ability to sit down, slow down, stop watching Netflix or whatever it was I was doing, and just, you know, kindly and gently walking through the missing assignments, putting together a list, asking her to email her teachers and advocate for advocate for herself, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, so I feel so great this morning about myself. 
that's awesome. Did she get like stressed out? No, 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 no. She would get stressed out if we got stressed out. So if our first child had gotten a D or even on, on like in the middle of a semester, we would have just hit the, I mean, I remember this, I'm sorry, this is way too much information, but I remember my son was working on a, a project for Lincoln and Jen and I just took over the project in seventh grade. And we, oh, we basically wrote the whole thing, handed it in, he got an A and we were really proud of ourselves. <laughs> the total helicopter moment right there. <laughs> we would never do that, ever do that for her. We're just like, ah, are, you know, are you at school? Good, you have Zoom on, great. So anyway, enough of that, enough of me. Yep. How about you? What, where are you making progress? Well, my progress actually has to do with Journey 66 and you teaching me how to upload content to the site. It's a new platform, one that I'm not familiar with. So you did some Loom instructional videos and I'm just trying to figure it out and not be afraid of the technology. You're much more tech savvy than I am, Dave. And, you know, I, I live with a bunch of tech people and so I, I know just enough to be dangerous, but I am learning it and I am going to be fluent in it. So that's my progress. Melissa, Thank 10 you. years ago, you were doing some stuff in HTML. So I know you have this in you. <laughs> I, totally I do. You. It's just, you know, I wouldn't, I'd rather just be talking like we are today than, you know, doing all the editing and uploading that I push on to you. So anyway, Jamie, how about you? We don't want to put you on the spot. But you no, that's to... fine. David, I agree with you. I have a 13 year old boy. He's, you know, he's gone to regular school, but the times he has done the online, it's like, how are you, how are you having D's? How do you miss all these assignments? So I'm with you on that. I feel your pain. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, of course. For, for my progress, I'm actually working on my second screenplay. And I got a lot of editing done, a lot of good feedback from my friend who is my reader. Just really feel like the characters are popping off the page and um, just getting through the process of, of switching gears in my mind and learning a new craft. So, you know, I learned a little bit about how to write the, I don't even know what it's called. That's how baby I am. The in between the dialogue stuff. And what I was doing is up here, I was envisioning what the scene looked like. But on paper, I was just going straight to the action. So I went through and, and added a little two to three sentence description of every scene. And it really, it added pages and it just helped to really set the, like I'm watching the movie. So um, it was really, I'm very excited about the process. So where does it go once you have it written? Are you gonna pitch it to a production company or what's the um, Sort of, um, I, have a, um, I have a connection with Hallmark. So it's a Hallmark Christmas rom-com. No my way! Yeah, they're reading my first one, fingers crossed, knock on wood. It's been shortlisted, so I'm just waiting to hear back either a, a yes or a no. And it's my first, so a no would be fine, uh, but the door's open. So I'm working on the next one. So that way, when the yes or no comes, I'll have something else to hand them. So That's amazing. So my husband, he watches Hallmark from, you know, October 31st till January 15th <laughs> and it's so funny because he's just like athletic kind of jock kind of guy but he's like has his feet up every night watching all the Hallmark movies so I'm very Gary? oh yes Gary he's a he's a he's like the smartest guy you've ever known I mean I'm not making any judgments but he's like this computer engineer like just I mean he's like the guy you aspire to be and he's this ath so that's that makes me that comforts me that's yeah. so awesome <laughs> 
this is a little off topic, but do you follow the arch, the character arch? It's actually like, it's like a Hallmark arch. It's really weird, but they have a very specific list of do's and don'ts per act. And there's nine acts. So it's just a very different structure. It's been very interesting to learn. Do you have the missed kiss in yours? You know how they always have like, oh, we're going to kiss, always. but somebody interrupts yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> you have to. That's the, oh. <laughs> oh my and God. it's really funny because I, I don't do romance, you know, like I write about werewolves and vampires and dragons and stuff. And so this has been such a change for me. And it's like, oh, I hate to say it, but it's so easy for me to write like the it's what I was built to write. And when I was a freshman in college, my English professor, we turned in our first assignment and my English professor read it and went, oh, you're a romance writer. And I was just like, how dare you? You know, like I was so mad. And now here I am all these years later discovering that you know, I actually might be a romance writer. So who knew? Awesome. Well, I'm going to be looking for your name. Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's so great. That's awesome. And when you're sipping champagne on your yacht from all the money you've made on your screenplays, we'd like to interview you again. I like that idea. Absolutely. It'll be like parked though, because I get seasick. So it'll just be like someone else's yacht. And I'm totally down for that. Day. <laughs> all right. Well, let's dig into our interview today. I think we just want to start out by hearing more about your body of work. You talk about werewolves. And so tell us a little bit about your body of work. You've also written a nonfiction book. So if you want to just tell us about what you've written, that'd be sure. awesome to start there. You mentioned Clifton. So I'll pop, I have everything here. Clifton and then Arrow of Light and On Castle Rock. These are my first books. This one just came out in um, November. This is the sequel. And I mostly, what I've discovered is I mostly write fantasy thrillers for teens and tweens. So whether it's a high fantasy like Dreadlands, Dreadlands is more like Lord of the Rings epic fantasy adventure, whereas Clifton Chase is more like your, your Harry Potter, your Narnia, where it's kind of grounded in reality, but there's a little bit of, of magic and time travel and fun epic moments in the story. And I also find that my writing tends to lean toward a social issue uh, without meaning to. And I love that because it really opens up doors to kids and conversations that sometimes feel a little daunting or we just don't know how to open them as adults. So like Clifton, I learned was an anti-bullying book and I have had the pleasure of speaking to kids about that. Whereas book two, didn't even mean to, but I have this sub thread about the dwarves and the humans having this conflict from their past and it's really a reflection of inclusion, what we're going through in the world right now, what we went through last year. So it's, it's kind of interesting how art does reflect life, right? Even before life sometimes. And then Metal Mouth is my magical realism book. And this is more uh, a very grounded in reality, but the girl, she starts to hear a boy's voice in her head after she's struck by lightning and her braces start transmitting him and she doesn't know if he's real or not. So that one is all about voice because she is very much the uh, daughter of a famous writer and a cruise ship magician based off of my neighbor across the street. Her whole existence is sleight of hand and appearance is everything. And she doesn't agree with that, but her self-discovery is, wow, maybe I do agree with that more than I thought because she can't see this boy and, and then it starts to have her question, well, what if he sees me? Is he still going to like me? 
So that is a presentation I get to share with kids on voice as a writer and, and finding your own voice as a, as a person, you know, that is something we all struggle with, I think, on and off throughout our existence. I would love to follow up on all these different genres that you're writing. When you're in the middle of writing, how do you not lose the thread? How do you not write something that you go, oh my God, I didn't even introduce that in chapter one. I thought I did, but I, how do you make sure that it all hangs together? Well, in the beginning, I wrote on the fly. Uh, my first Clifton and Dreadlands was all just, I know the beginning, I know the end, so I got to get there. That was it. Um, but now I outline everything. I sit down and write the entire story from start to finish. What I found that really was helpful with that is life happens. And I have four or five complete outlines in my computer that I don't remember anything about. So when I sit down and read them, all those great ideas would have been lost if I just thought about them and then never actually got to sit down and write it. The specific act of writing for like cataloging everything and making sure it's cohesive, uh, two answers. One, I don't care in draft one, I just write. Two, <laughs> I, I use the formula of save the cat, which ironically is a screenwriting formula, but it does break down the elements and the like 15 beats is what they're called that you should hit as you're writing a commercial story. And Jessica Brody wrote save the cat writes a book, which I've purchased, but not opened yet. And I'm very, I'm sure it's extraordinarily helpful to translate that content for writing a book. I guess there's a third answer. Sometimes I just let the characters go. Like in, in book two of Dreadlands that I just finished, these berserkers show up from the homeland to Labrador, Canada, which is where the story takes place. And there's this shield maiden who kind of like she owns them. And she was just a character. Like that's it. But that girl walked off that ship like she owned the place and she became a main character. And I had no clue she even existed before I started, before she popped into the scene. So sometimes you have to just go with it. Do you know off the top of your head what Save the Cat, is it an acronym? Save the Cat? Yes, it is. It's like every story has to have that Save the Cat moment. The character comes in and it shows their like humanity. You know, it shows that, that they're not this like static character. Um, you have to have that Save the Cat moment where, hey, everything has to stop because I have to save a cat. <laughs> And if you wouldn't do that, then you're a bad person. <laughs> right, right. So you probably followed that, that um, model in the Hallmark script. The second one, the one that I'm editing right now, I spent, I, I do a lot of walking with my dog and I voice record. So then next and then next and then next. And I just go like scene by scene. But I sat down with index cards and I literally envisioned the entire film on index cards, scene by scene. And I did, they were like 62 cards, which ended up increasing when I actually wrote the story. Of course, I realized where my huge gap of story was, but I, I kind of do the same thing with my books when I outline, I just don't label them scene by scene, you know, but I do go through and do like six to 12 page synopsis, I guess, of the story as I'm, um, before I start writing it now. So the outline is, back to that is a six to 10 page synopsis. Are they bullet, yeah. are they bullet points? What, how does, is it narrative? Yeah, it's awful narrative. It's like Joe walks into room, Joe sees box, Joe picks up box. And then 
I'll do a paragraph where I think the scene is going to change. So Joe takes Box into the house. You know, it's really awful, awful writing. I would never share with anybody. But it just gives me all of what I see happening. You know, and I see it like a movie. And I'm like, well, what would happen next in this film? I've always done that. You know, what would happen next? What, what scene would come next? Like, naturally, what scene would come next? And I just write the entire story out. I don't do dialogue. When I'm doing the book, I really just go straight through scene by scene by scene and, and try to map out the whole story from A to Z. Well, one of the takeaways, I think, for our listeners, and I've always struggled uh, with structure, and it's, it, it's just that if you're a writer, you struggle with structure. And it's true with nonfiction, and I can see that it's essential to fiction. And But I think one of the takeaways here is to slow down and not just start writing, but to slow down and think through it visually like you do. And we probably don't have the wonderful mind that you have, but I do like this idea of, of the dictation. Was it diction? Is that what you call it? Dictation or yeah, dictation? Of, yeah. Really recording as you're walking, thinking of it like a movie, right? Thinking of it like a movie, a series of scenes. I think that can be applied to nonfiction as well as fiction. So that is that's true. Yeah. It absolutely can because even if it's even if it's a nonfiction book about how to how to bake, I mean, you want to have a story in there and you want to have a story arc and it. It's not going to be like the, the Pillsbury Doughboy. You know, it's going to be your story, but, you know, you want to have that cohesive line to where somebody feels like they're on a journey. And that's that's true of nonfiction. You have to feel like you're on a journey. And, um, you know, I, I've outlined nonfiction stories for, for people in the past. And what is the nugget that you're trying to share? And it can even be like a self-help book, but you still want to have that story and, and including your own personal struggles along the way sometimes is that story that you weave into the topic. Um, you had asked earlier about my nonfiction, and this is my book, um, write a book that doesn't suck. I, I have a lot of myself in it where I'll say, this is how I do this, or this was my struggle. How do you, how do you write something that's supposed to be a coincidence on purpose? Because you're doing it on purpose. So how do you write it so that organically the reader goes, oh, I know what's going to happen next, but they feel like it's a coincidence. <laughs> so it's just, it's tools and tricks that I've never read in writing books before that I do in my writing. And it's full of um, modern day and classic references in television, film, and books uh, with four or five questions that you can apply to your own writing at the end of each chapter. All right. So we got to get the name of that book for all our listeners, How to Write a Book That Doesn't Suck. Or Write a Book That Doesn't Suck by Jamie Engel. Make sure you pick that up. We're definitely going to pick that up. Yeah, and I have a Facebook group of the same name that's open to all authors. We have about 150 indie and traditionally published authors in the group. And we just kind of help each other out and, and post about our own stuff and ask questions. So it's, uh, it's free to join. Awesome. That's awesome. Let's go back to Clifton Chase, because I do want to hear about how you experienced self-publishing the first time. So you mentioned <laughs> that your publisher bailed, which must have been like a horrible experience. Can you tell us about the emotion of receiving that news and like your yeah. first step immediately after that? Um, tears. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, as a little girl, I wanted to be an author. So here I was about to have that come to life, you know, and it was just amazing. 98 agent rejections and one editor said yes. So 
we're 30 days out from launch and I called her and I'm like, Hey, um, shouldn't we be like promoting or something? Like we're really close to launch date. And she said, uh, I'm walking into a woman's shelter. I will be unavailable for 45 days. And she hung up on me. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? I'm like, so um, I had reached out to mommy bloggers to do giveaways and I owed them books now because they were giving away my book on launch day. So um, I ended up getting through to her and um, pointing out that she had, by not marketing me properly, uh, she had breached the contract. So she gave me my book back. So she gave me the cover, the formatted interior, uh, and everything back. And that was because in our negotiations, I had spent nine days becoming an expert in contract law and sending her back things that I wanted added and omitted from the contract. Um, I, I did not sign it until I understood every single line in the contract because it's my product. It's my IP. So I wasn't going to just sign it over because she was the 99th person and she said yes. Um, so that I feel it it's very important if you're self-published um, or, or small indie published, if you're going to go with somebody that you understand everything. Because I have friends who sign contracts in perpetuity or whatever that word is, that they don't own their book. They'll never own their book. They signed away their book forever and they don't understand that's what they did when they did it. Um, kind of like Dave Chappelle, if you know that story, if not Google it and you'll get caught up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I learned all that. So, um, so she gave me my book rights back and now I had to figure out how to become a self-published author. So at that time it was create space. So I went in, I uploaded, I figured out what a keyword meant and I figured out what a BIASC code was and, um, and I self-published. And I had a dismal launch as you can imagine. And I was heartbroken and I felt robbed. And, um, and I kind of like, that was it. I walked away from that book for a year. And I was driving home one day from St. Augustine after a little mini writer's retreat with two of my writer friends, um, Christina Benjamin and, and Jane um, Quackenbush. They're amazing, uh, like YA romance and picture book and middle grade authors. And I was driving home and I was like, like really mad at God. And I'm like, why didn't you make me write this stupid book? And, um, and I just had this like feeling of um, bullying. And I sat back and I was like, okay, so Clifton's bullied. He's in middle school. Dave, he's, he's in seventh grade. Um, he was dealing with the school bully. And the two princes that inspired the book were locked in the Tower of London by their uncle to steal the throne from them, King Richard III. And, and like the whole thing was rooted in bullying and I just missed it. So I went home, it was around Christmas time, and I, I created a brand, uh, created a hashtag. I started emailing schools in my um, area that I was an anti-bullying, um, I had an anti-bullying book and I'd like to talk to kids about bullying. And I had like five school visits booked before I went back, before they went back in January. And to fast forward that, what that turned into was this opportunity to um, open the door to kids about empathy, uh, the power of words in life and literature, and the fact that they can, they can create or they can destroy others with their words. And I had no clue that was going to be my mission when I started writing a, a fantasy book. If anyone has published a book, 
it can be very disheartening because you work so hard and you sell like four and nobody knows who you are. Uh, and I was upset one day about that. And my son, who was in high school at the time, he said, mom, you know, sometimes it's not about the money, <laughs> like these brilliant children that, that put us in our place. Sometimes it's not about the sales. And he told me that when he was in, um, when he was in seventh grade, I spoke at his school, which is the school that the story takes place in, which was really cool. And he said that in high school later, a boy came up to him and said, your mom came to our school in seventh grade and I was going to kill myself that day when I got home from school. And something she said in our presentation, I didn't. And I just wanted you to know that your mom saved my life. And I had, how do you, how do you handle that? Like, how do you process that from writing a, a dumb fantasy book, you know, like, and that's what it's all about, that it's greater than us. We all have a story to tell, and it may only be four people or one kid who needs to hear it, but you are required to get that book out for that one person to hear. And that's what this is really all about is what I've learned. Absolutely. We talked a lot about that in our road trippers group and also just here in this podcast that you have to have the why behind your writing and there has to be a passion to continue to push you forward and often it isn't about the book sales but changing lives and how our words change lives so thank you for sharing that story that's really really profound so when you threw yourself into this self-publishing and promotion what did you learn about self-publishing that you didn't know before and you know there's a stigma against self-publishing and Tell us about when your mind started to shift and believe that self-publishing wasn't all that bad. (laughs) Um, A couple of things. I mean, I work really, really hard to market myself. I'm constantly reaching out to libraries and writing conferences and schools. So I do work extraordinarily hard to get myself in front of people. Most people that self-publish feel the industry owes them. All published authors. They feel like, I've written a book, therefore you should buy it. And no... (laughs) That's not the case. And I think that was a big um, pill to swallow that just because you wrote a book doesn't mean anyone should or shouldn't. And there's still really great authors out there that I meet every day that I'm introduced to through BookBub or something that have like, you know, 50 books published and I've never heard of them before and they're New York Times bestsellers. So you have to understand, and this is what, what, you know, swift in my head, it's a business that you're starting. It's not a creative endeavor. If you just want to have a creative endeavor, blog. Put your chapters up on a blog, share them for free, and enjoy life. But if you want to sell books, you become the publisher. And publishers are businesses, and they have bottom lines, and they have budgets, and they have jobs. And you have to understand that that's what you're taking. And most businesses don't profit in the first three years. And most self-published authors don't sell more than 50 copies of their books. So you have to understand the industry and follow it and understand trends. And if you want to like sell, you can't just write what you want. You have to write what's trending. And that's hard. It's hard to um, take in. If you don't want to be that kind of an author, if you just want to share your story, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that either. I liken it to being a band because people get this. You can be a garage band. And, and play the music you love that nobody's ever going to hear and be sort of good at it and maybe never get any better. And that's awesome. Nobody, that's perfect. 
You can also be a local band and you play like cover music, right? That's like a ghostwriter. That's someone that's hired to write something and they do it for the money. There's nothing wrong with that either. It's perfect. You can also be a um, popular local band that people know who you are. They hire you to come play your music and you never get any bigger than that. And that's kind of where I feel like I am. And I'm so happy to be that person because I'm in control of my business. I get to make my own t-shirts. I can turn all my books into movies. I have buttons that I sell. You know, like I, I get to be the, the creator of my entire IP. Then you have your JK Rowlings. You have your famous musicians. And everybody knows their household names. They're making it big. And they have problems too. JK Rowling can't just write anything. She's gonna be scrutinized because it's gonna be compared to Harry Potter. And, and that's a good problem to have, but famous people can't just go walk around, right? They'll be noticed. They have to always be on their game face. So all of these levels of musicians, because I think it's easier to understand than writers, they all have pluses and minuses. And what you have to do is figure out, do you wanna be a garage band? Or do you want to try and be a superstar and, and really be comfortable and happy with your choice? And I think that's really what I learned as an independent author. That's all me. I pick my art. I hire my artists. I format my own books. I am so proud of the beautiful line I've created. And I mimic Simon & Schulster books. When you open my book, it looks, they all look the same. They all have the same formatting. They all have the same you know, praise to the author, my, my you know, required page, 13 um, lines, you know, 13 font. This, I bought the same font that Simon & Schulster used for uh, Neil Schusterman's books because I liked the way it looked. So my competition, my books mimic. And, and that's, I'm happy. I love being indie author. I love knowing that I am the, the captain of my own ships. I'd like to talk a little bit about, or have you, maybe expand upon this idea of, of risk-taking because with uh, you likened this to uh, like a small business, I think is what you, well, you were likening it to a small business. And this idea of, we always say it takes a thousand days. We have a marketing agency, so we worked with a lot of startups and I've started several businesses. And so I know that it takes a thousand days. You don't know until three years really whether or not you're gonna succeed. You certainly aren't making your house payment until three years, right? Now, yes, there's the anomalies, but they are—they only only pr prove the rule, right? Which is it—it it takes a while. So, talk a little bit about the mindset of two things. One is the idea of risk. You're risking your own money. So, when you decided that you're going to hire a designer that does everything that you want, you're going to do your own art. You're investing in yourself. Talk about that mindset because I think. As authors, like you said, we have this idea, if they if we build it, they will come. If we write it, they will buy it. And it's just not true. It really is a mindset. And I, I'm not gonna lie, I've I was every time I write a new book, I submit it to an agent. Like I still try. It was only until COVID that I decided that I wasn't gonna do that anymore. And the only way I can balance my business is by um, very clear ins and outs of my expenses. You know, I have everything mapped out, how many books I sell. I can tell you how much it costs per bookmark. You need to know your business. 
So I, I do, I, I know um, about how many sales I get with a school visit. So if I want to do this full time, how many school visits do I need a month? Um, what other ways can I sell books? Having that mindset of the risk is, do I, do I need to send this to Kirkus for a review? It's like $395 or something. Uh, normally, no. But Metal Mouth, I wanted to submit to the Sunshine State List here in Florida, and they require a professional review, and one of them is Kirkus. So I had the Kirkus review done. It was stellar, so much so that they chose it as an editor's choice book for last year, and that helped to push my book into the Sunshine State List um, for a contender for the next year and the New Mexico Land of Enchantment List. I, I sent it out to every school list in, in the United States that it fit. Um, my books. I, that's one of the things I did this year, just to test it. You have to test stuff. That's really my answer. You have to test stuff and you have to keep track of your expenses. What I've learned is for me, newsletters do not work. Nobody cares. Nobody buys books off my newsletters. And I hate writing MailChimp newsletters. It takes me two hours to write a dang newsletter. So I flipped it to my website. I can blog on my website in 15 minutes. I don't know what the difference is. It's the same thing. So for me, I have found that my risk is less when I do it on my blog and share it to my social media. I've hired someone to run my social media. I don't do that anymore. I haven't for two years. I don't post anything except for if it's my face, then that's me. But if it's anything marketing wise, that goes to my assistant. Uh, for me, the hundred bucks a month it costs me for her to do my social marketing is well worth it because that's time I can spend on writing because I do have a full-time job. I'm a real estate agent with my husband. So we run a team. So it's not like I can just sit here and eat bonbons and write movies and books all day. Um, so yeah, so you have to track it though. If you don't track your stuff, how are you going to know what's working? How are you going to know where to invest and setting a budget on that? How much do you want to spend per book? I know people that spend thousands of dollars to launch an independent book and they never see that money again. That makes no sense to me, which is why I learned how to format and why I found a company like um, Bookbrush. If you guys are familiar with Bookbrush, you can design your own cover in Bookbrush. My, my latest book, this was my first, I don't have it yet. It's on its way from Amazon. This is the first book cover I did by myself and I'm very happy with it. And this was all in Bookbrush. Now the printing's awful because it was on my you know house computer, but um, I'm, I'm so excited to get this book in my hand and I'm very proud of the, how it looked and didn't cost me, um, well, it cost me what, $7 for the month, right? <laughs> you, you did so, hire an illustrator, correct? You, did you hire? No, this is the first one I did not. I, I found this image on Pixabay, free images that you can use for commercial use. And then I added in the dog and I did the, um, the words, my, you know, picked what I liked and. And I literally, this is the first cover I've done completely myself. It cost me $7. Now, this one, this one, I hired a um, comic book illustrator because I wanted to have that Gravity Falls look, and he just nailed it. Uh, this one cost me a few hundred dollars, but I do all my formatting myself, so that saves me. And um, I have a great group of, of beta readers who serve as my editors after I'm done because I my editing process is extensive. And I used to edit, I've probably edited 80 books for authors over the years. 
So that's one of my strengths. So I don't have to spend $1,200 to $2,000 in edits. So that's a big, big savings. Tell us about your PR firm and how you help authors. I want to turn to that. I th- it sounds like you help them on the editing phase. Do you also help them on the promotional phase? And tell us uh, what you do. No, not anymore. I, I did. Um, unfortunate, well, fortunately and unfortunately, my business has taken off to a point where uh, I just don't have the time anymore, which is why I have the, um, you know, the book and the Facebook group so that everybody can collaborate together. I get messaged probably two or three times a week on Facebook with people saying, hey, I wrote a book. What do I do? Um, so I will respond to the best of my ability because I still want to help authors. Um, and I do a lot of speaking for free to give back. And I have a ton of resources on my YouTube channel. Um, so for now, that is all I am capable of giving. Can you talk a little bit about promotion? And you said that the newsletter didn't work in promoting your book. You talked about how you reached out to mommy bloggers. That was somewhat successful. What other promotional activities should authors be doing when they, that initial launch into the world? Um, I, I had a come to Jesus moment again with marketing. And what I realized was I was spending hundreds of dollars and time to reach out to people through like Facebook, which is great. When people in my own town didn't even know who I was. So I had this idea like, why am I spending all this effort to go outside of my my county when I haven't even been to every school or library in my county yet? So I, I pulled everything back and I started focusing on We have 103 schools in my county. So I reached out to all of them. I reached out to all the libraries. I found when they had local craft fairs, local um, author events, and I just really started focusing on my personal space. And I found that um, I was selling easily and I was booking school visits easily. And then from there, I started branching out to the, the, the counties that touched my county and then to the state. So now I've been to, you know, like Jacksonville and uh, in three weeks I'm speaking at the Broward Library System. Last week I spoke in the Hillsborough County Library System, which is Tampa. So now my whole state I've kind of touched. I, I liken myself to a virus. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep spreading, but I start localized. <laughs> so bad, I really would recommend metaphor. that. <laughs> yeah. But I would, I would recommend, like, if you go to the grocery store and people don't recognize you, then there's no point for you to be leaving your county and trying to reach other readers, in a sense. So that was my main focus. Over the past two years, realizing that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, like, they're fun, and that's what my assistant does, but they don't really, like, work for me, I started on Goodreads, um, and I found this great YA group that has a Introduce Yourself thread. So every time somebody introduces themselves, I get a ping and I click on them and friend request them. So I'm constantly building. When they accept it, I go to their list and see what kind of books they like. And if they like mine, I reach out to them and go, Hey, I see we have similar tastes in books. I'm an author. I would, if you're interested in reading for free, pick a book and I'll send you an ebook or a paperback. Um, The first title is always on me because I'm spending, you know, $100 a month on Amazon ads, right? That's 30 books a month I could be giving away for free. 
why am I spending a hundred dollars to, to sell books to strangers that I can't even follow and, and capture the lead on when I could give away 30 books and have the same results. And then now we have a relationship and now they might be interested in supporting me. You know, it just made more sense to me to do it that way. And that's, that's what I've been doing. And I've had, you know, five, at least five new reviews a month on my books and I'm meeting new people and they're, they're sharing their book on social because they feel that connection as opposed to someone who just buys it on Amazon because Amazon says, Hey, I think you'll like this book. So just thinking in that, that framework has really helped me to have a better publicity model and, and get a better ROI. That's a brilliant move. I don't think we've talked with an author who has said it quite like that, but it really goes back to the networking, the personal interaction. Would you refer this book? And we always say, is your book so good that somebody would refer it? And often you got to get in the person's hand and have a warm connection for that even to first take place. So that's, that's a great insight. That is, this has been so terrific. Uh, I hear you say go local <laughs> first yeah. before yeah. you try to go global. And I think that is just brilliant. Yeah, I feel like I've taken a class. So Aww, you guys are awesome. I appreciate that. Dave, let's turn to the words of our episode. And I will go first since you led with how you made progress. And my word is so terrific. I love this word. And it means tending to induce drowsiness or sleep. So symphony, the symphony music was so terrific. If you're drowsing, if you're kind of being lulled to sleep as the violins are playing. Sometimes there's a calm breeze and that can be so terrific or the, the warm sun. So I love that word, so terrific. A meal on Thanksgiving is so terrific, <laughs> tending to do induce drowsiness or sleep. That is a terrific word. Mine is so uh, awful compared to that. That's a beautiful word. Mine is rapacious. And it refers to being aggressively greedy or grasping. And so I, I picked up the word this morning when I was reading Mary Oliver, the, the, uh, the great poet. Uh, she won the Pulitzer Prize. She just died recently. I mentioned her recently. I love her words, but she, this is the first, it comes in this sentence. She's talking about uh, skates, which are a form of, ray, of a ray. They're like a, um, like a fish, right? Their soft white belly skin is plucked open in an hour by the rapacious beaks of the gulls. Mary Oliver is just brilliant. I tell you what, reading the essays and, and words of, of poets when they start to write, you realize how powerful compact sentences are. So uh, I, I wanted to use rapacious, not because I thought it was a beautiful word, but I thought the way she used it was wonderful. Right. And just think of that sentence without rapacious in it. You would still get an image of the white bellies, the white bellies can be ripped open by beaks of the gulls, but this one has so much more emotion and visual intensity to it. We often talk about one of the, the marks of a, of a young writer is the fact that they add too many adjectives and adverbs. I mean, you can, you can see this, uh, you smell this a mile away. It's because those adjectives and adverbs are not powerful. They're not unique. And so she's using rapacious as an adjective in front of the noun beaks, but it adds something to the word, to the noun of beaks. And so, um, so there is a time to add adjectives and adverbs, and you just have to be really judicious as you do it. Right, right. 
Absolutely, because this speaks to me of like more more violence, intensity, rather than I'm just kind of picking up something that was left behind for a little snack. So it's a great, great use of an adjective. Thanks for sharing that, Dave. What about you, Jamie? Do you have a word you'd like to share? Not to put you on the spot again. <laughs> um, I, I don't really have a word, but I will say that um, when I'm writing, and I hope this helps, um, you know, my first draft is is a mess. So please understand that. But when I go back through if I can't imagine the word, then can I cut it? She was going to the store. How many of those words do you picture? She, store, maybe going, right? But how can you change that to where you're using only words that you can see? And that literally my second draft is almost rewriting every single sentence because there's so many words you can take out and replace with beautiful words like you guys both shared that capture it. For an example, in my script last night, um, the word um, armchair, I was writing the chair on the end when you're at a table. And I'm like, there's gotta be a name for that, right? It's called the armchair. I didn't know that. So he sat in the armchair is way better than he sat in the chair on the end, right? So just looking up and seeing how can I, if I can't see it, then how can I rewrite it? It's, it's what I do in almost every sentence in that second draft. That is golden, right? Wow, I've never pure heard anybody. Gold. Yeah, pure gold, absolutely. That, thanks so much for sharing. All right, Dave, before we sign off, I want you to tell us a little bit about Road Trippers and how people can sign up for that and what we do in Road Trippers. So Road Trippers is our weekly Q&A. So we do a weekly Q&A for writers of all types and we do it on Tuesday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. Central. And, and it's just a pilot group that we're doing right now. We're building out an online uh, membership community. And, but if you want to join it to get the link, it's a Zoom link that you'll need. You can just jump on Facebook and join our group, Road Trippers. We'll let you in as a closed group. And you'll be able to get the link and join our group. So we have a really, really great uh, group right now. We're discussing so many things like, why are you writing? And and oh gosh, the conversations are really deep as well as great questions. We also do a short teaching session. Uh, Melissa recently did one about how to bury your research uh, in your, you know, for those of you who do a lot of research in your nonfiction books, how to bury it beneath the surface of the text, which is so important to keep readers' attention. So anyway, jump on Facebook, search for Road Trippers, and ask to join the group. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap, Dave. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.